Hello, my name is David. Um, the Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Carmen, and the New Testament reading is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is taken from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God who has come to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and who is with us now through the Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we would see and hear and believe and be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the third Sunday of Advent, Joy Sunday. Uh, we use purple colors on the stage during Advent as a way of uh, symbolizing the royalty, the arrival of King Jesus. And then this Sunday, this third week, oftentimes pink is used as an accent. I left my pink shirt uh, I don't have a pink shirt. Um, <laughs> but pink is often meant to be this break to say, ah, oh, joy, the arrival of King Jesus is good news. And for all of us during Advent, we are in one sense looking back at his first arrival in the manger in Bethlehem, but we are also looking forward to his ultimate and final arrival on the day that he appears. And so when we look at these different scriptures, we've been going through various texts 
from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was one of maybe the key prophet who gave us uh, a key vision of what Jesus would look like, what it would look like when God came back to his people. And so we've used these different scriptures from Isaiah over the last couple weeks uh, here in Advent to help us not only look back and look at Jesus and his arrival as a baby in Bethlehem, but also to say, now what does this look like for us as we await his final and future arrival. Now, Isaiah is kind of divided into three sections. I just want you to see these two sections here. Chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah really has a theme of judgment. If you think about it, Isaiah 6, Isaiah has that famous vision where he sees the glory of the Lord and he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There is a theme of judgment. In fact, Isaiah um, will have a number of children that have very symbolic names. One of the names even hints at the severing of a relationship between God and His people, that they are no longer to be called His people, that it speaks of this exile, this judgment that has come and is coming. But then everything changes in chapter 40. Chapter 40, in fact, if you are kind of a theater person, it's as if the curtain closes at the end of 39 and you're left with Act 1, the scene, the theme of judgment. And then there's a long intermission, perhaps, and then the curtain opens with Isaiah 40. And you can imagine this now with music, thanks to Handel's Messiah, the opening refrain of Isaiah 40, Comfort ye, my peace. Yes, on and on it goes. And these are the words of Isaiah 40, because from Isaiah 40 all the way on to 55 is a theme of God's deliverance, a theme of rescue. Aren't you glad that the drama doesn't end with judgments? Aren't you glad? And actually, there's a third act from 56 on to 66, which is all about new creation and new heavens and new earth. It's remarkable. But this opening stanza of chapter 40 is what we're going to look at today. We heard it in the ESV during our readings. Listen to it in the message paraphrase. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But also make it clear that she has served her sentence, that her sin is taken care of, forgiven. She's been punished enough and more than enough, and now it's over and done with. Thunder in the desert. Prepare for God's arrival. Make the road straight and smooth. A highway fit for our God. Fill in the valleys. Level off the hills. Smooth out the ruts. Clear out the rocks. And then God's bright glory will shine and everyone will see it. Yes, just as God has said. I want you to notice a couple things. First, in that opening sentence, God says, comfort My people says your God. If chapter 39 ends with the cliffhanger question, is Israel still considered God's people? Is God going to abandon them? Have they gone and done it? And God's going to say, enough, I'm done, I've had it, you're not mine anymore. If that was the fear, Isaiah 40 introduces the comfort of God saying, remember, we've talked about this even in our Genesis series, pronouns are very important in Hebrew storytelling. And here God says, comfort my people. They're mine. And I am your God. So Isaiah, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to them. And then the second thing we see in this text is this image of a highway being made ready. Now, if you've driven up to the mountains on I-70, once in a while maybe you've stopped and you've read the plaques and you, you've seen what it took to make Eisenhower Tunnel or the other tunnel on the other side, I think it's Johnson Tunnel maybe, and you, you, you discover what it took to sort of blow a hole up in the mountain, middle of a mountain to prepare the way of the skiers. And there's, there's immense effort and planning and engineering that it takes to say, prepare the way. People are coming to the hills. They're heading to the slopes. Prepare the way. And actually, this theme of making the road straight, making a way for God's people is a recurring theme in the scriptures. We sang it this morning. Make a way where there seems to be no way, where there is no way. Make a way, God. Exile and homecoming are a motif throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Think about it. Early on in Genesis, the first humans are exiled from Eden, kicked out of the paradise of God's presence, wondering when they're going to get to dwell with God again. Later, the story goes on. There's a lot of people being driven out. There's Abraham leaving his father's house in search of a new home. We've talked through those stories There's Joseph, whose brothers get so jealous of him, they kick him out and sell him out as a slave in Egypt. You're wondering, is he ever going to return home to his father who loves him? And then, of course, there's the people of Israel, children of Israel themselves, who who live in Egypt and things seem to be going well until a different pharaoh comes on the scene who forgets about Joseph and then treats them like slaves. And then you wonder, is God going to make a way home And the wonderful story of the Exodus where God makes a way, literally parts the waters, makes a way through the desert where there is no way. And then there's this theme of when they're later on in exile in Babylon, wondering who will pave the way, make the way for us to actually go home. Homecoming is a powerful motif in the Bible, but I say not just in the Bible, (laughs) And so many of the great stories and epic tales from Homer to Tolkien are about the long journey home again. Um, I was traveling on the day before Thanksgiving and, and landed at uh, Denver, Denver International Airport sometime Wednesday evening. And as we were coming up the escalators uh, into the baggage claim area, the terminal area, uh, there were people there with signs welcoming home family members who were just coming back from deployment, welcoming home troops. This morning I sat in front of a young man who had just come back a month ago from deployment in Afghanistan. There's this emotional power of saying there's been a difficult service that has been accomplished and so there's an emotional homecoming. In fact, some of the commentaries say this language that God says, tell Jerusalem that her sentence has been served. Yes, there's a sense of punishment, but there's also this overture, overtone of a military service, a a deployment and then a return home. And so the prophet speaks for God and says, prepare the way, comfort them. But something very different is going on here, very much like in Psalm 24, where we began thinking about a way for us. Actually, the prophet says, let's change the picture. This is a way for God. 
This is the way of the Lord. This is preparing the way of the Lord. Listen to verse 10. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. So hang on a minute. This is not a highway for God's people. This is a highway for God. This is not a highway for us to come to God. This is a highway for God to come to us. Now, I think this is beautiful because there are many ways of talking about the gospel. There's, there's a beautiful picture. There's a way of understanding the gospel that's perfectly good and right and true to say that Jesus made a way for us to come to God. Absolutely, wonderfully true. But there's another image that Isaiah is using here, and that is of God coming to us, finding us. And this image to me is so emotionally charged, full of comfort. Comfort my people, God says. Why? Not because I've made it possible for them to come to me. Comfort my people because I'm coming to them. Our comfort is found in knowing that God has come to us. For any parent in the room who has a, a, you know, young children, you know the feeling of a child waking up with a nightmare or a night terror. You know, it's like the nightmare times two, right? Where they take a while to snap out of it. And it never works. I've tried it with each of our kids. I've tried. It never works for me to say, hey, hey, stop. Hey, hey, it's fine. You're okay. <laughs> Laying in my bed, you know, saying, hey, shh. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I don't know why it doesn't work. And it also doesn't work for me to say, Dad's here. Just uh, come over here. Remember, the door's open. Come in our room. <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't have the same emotional power as me getting my butt out of bed and going over to them saying, Hey, 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 hey. It's okay. I'm here. I'm in your room. I'm with you. It's okay. Comfort comes from knowing that God has come to us. That God doesn't stand up in heaven and say, hey, hey, you, shh. Or, what are you uh, crying about? I've already made a way, died for your sins, blah, blah, blah. Just come on up here. God says, hang on, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the nightmare, I'm coming for you. That's why comfort is found in knowing that God has come to us. But let's unpack this a little bit more. Why is God's coming comforting? Specifically, what, 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 what could make this especially comforting? I think that really there are kind of two moments, two experiences, two situations that we find ourselves in. One is that feeling of being beyond help. That feeling that your choices, your actions have gone too far. You've gone too far. Jonas, our son, he loves, he's only happy when a ball is at his feet or in his hands. And so in the house, you know, we, we've had to find some ways that we got like the basketball hoop that hangs on the door and all this stuff. And we also got him this softer kind of spongier ball that he can kick around. Well, except that he keeps... You know, he keeps, the, the stakes keep getting higher and higher with how hard he kicks this ball. So he starts out by just kind of kicking it. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam! You know, I'll hear it like going against the wall. I'm like, okay, hey buddy, hey, hey, cool it, cool it. You know, take, take it down a notch, you know. Bam! And like every kid, he keeps going and just keeps going until all of a sudden, like, oh, and then silence. You're like, oh no. 
oh no, what's up? You've gone and done it now, right? And I walk over to the living room, and this picture that was hanging above the couch is now on the floor, you know, thankfully not shattered because it's not glass because it was smarter than that, but, <laughs> but it's now on the floor, and there's this look on his face like, uh-oh, like I've gone and done it. The Bible is full of moments of characters who sort of hit, they, they push, they push, they push, then it's like, oh, now you've gone and done it. Samson, you went and told Delilah what the actual source of your strength was, you know. And David, you just pushed it too far. Ah, oh, man, you just you took it up one extra notch. It's in all of our favorite holiday movies, too, the moment when Elf finally gets kicked out of the house, you know. You just went too far. And so there's these situations where we think, okay, you are beyond help because you just took this too far. There's, others, there's another situation, we'll get to that in a moment, but let's talk about that first one. The feeling of being beyond help. Listen to what the rest of verse 10 says. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. This is the image of God, the warrior king. This is the image of God, the one who says, that moment like in Tombstone where he says, you tell him I'm coming and all hell's coming with me. Only God doesn't say hell. He says, you know, tell him I'm coming and I'm coming with me. You know, that kind of thing. Just just make it clear. This is God coming with vengeance and recompense and strength. God, the warrior king. Why is that comforting? Here's why. When we were beyond help, God came as our warrior defeating sin and death. When you thought that the chains of sin, when you thought that the shame of your choices was too much for you to come to God, God came to you. God came to you. God came to you and said, these chains, let's break them. The grip of shame that's keeping your head down, let's break that. Years ago, there was a young man that I had mentored and had done the, their wedding and all of this stuff, and a couple of years into their marriage, we discovered through the wife's family that he had been having a year-long affair with, with another woman. And, and um, I reached out to him just to try to call and to, to, to let him know that I was there for him. They were living in another city and... And he wouldn't respond. There are moments where sin immobilizes us with shame, where you feel beyond help. You feel like, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. I can't talk. I, I just. And it's in those moments that you need to see God as the great warrior, not coming to destroy you, but coming to destroy the thing that ensnared you. Coming to destroy the thing that took you down and to say, no, I'll destroy this. I love the picture in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Edmund has gone too far and he's now the property property of the witches. And there has this long conversation and she's saying, Aslan, you know the law, you know the rule, Edmund is mine. And all of a sudden, Aslan works out this thing where he is now going to go with the witch. 
The very moment that you think there is no more hope, that you are beyond help, that you're the devil's now, that the chain of sin, the shame of your mistakes is too strong, it's in that moment that the lion appears. The warrior God, defeating sin and death. And then, verse 11, Isaiah gives a different image. He says in verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The shepherd who scoops up the lamb. Matthew Matthew probably had Isaiah's words in his mind when Matthew wrote his gospel. But Matthew talks about Jesus looking out at the crowds and having compassion. It says because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you wonder if Matthew has this image from Isaiah in his mind of Jesus, not only the warrior king, but Jesus, the shepherd king, scooping up the lambs in his arms. I don't know how many of you have pets, um, but there's something that people do when you love your pets. And it doesn't really work with cats because there's no reasoning with cats. But dogs are great. Dogs are amazing. I've, I had dogs when we were growing up, and we, you know, dogs are incredible. Cats are beyond salvation. <laughs> but there's this moment when you know that your dog, who always responds to your call, doesn't come. You know something's wrong. And there's this moment where pet owners, you see them act like the most foolish people in the world. Like, oh, come here, little buddy. And they bend down low, and they start making funny noise, and they scoop up the animal in their arms, they're caring for it. The image of a tender shepherd who scoops up an animal. What happens to an animal that makes them not respond? If there is one situation that we find ourselves in that we've talked about of feeling beyond help, there's the other scenario where we feel helpless. It's not that we feel beyond help, we just feel completely Helpless, like we can't change anything, we can't do anything. And it's in that moment when we were helpless, God came as our shepherd carrying us back home. When we were helpless, Isaiah's image of Jesus, of God coming to gather the lambs in his arms, to gather them, to pick them up when we were laying there helpless. It made me think of a study that the famous psychologist Martin Seligman did back in the 60s. He discovered a phrase that he called learned helplessness. And how they did this, ex- this experiment is they had three groups of dogs. And I apologize for dog lovers because this is going to sound a little bit tough. But they had three groups of dogs. And for group one, they put dogs in a harness for a certain amount of time and then later released them. Harness and then freedom. Then they had dogs that were in group two and group three. Now, here's what they did. Dogs in group two and group three, one from each group were kind of yoked together. They were in yoked pairs. And they were each given an electric shock at random moments. But the, and both dogs had a lever that they could press. The dogs in group two, whenever they pressed their lever, the electric shock stopped. And the dog in group three benefited from that. They're like, oh, oh, it stopped. But the dogs in group three also had a lever. One dog from group three, one dog from group two paired together, several of these pairs. The group three, the, the dog from group three that had a lever, their lever didn't do anything. 
So electric shock starts, present lever doesn't do anything, dog doesn't do anything. So for group three, the shock felt inescapable, felt like it ended at random, felt like there was nothing they could do to change it. Then in part two of the experiment, they took the dogs from each of the three groups and they put them in a box that had a side of the box that was low enough that they could jump over it. And as soon as the electric shocks began, guess what the dogs from group one did? Jumped over. I'm getting out of here. I ain't going to stay for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Jumped over. (laughs) Dogs from group two. As soon as that shock came in, group two, jumped over. Dogs from group two, let's get out of here. But the dogs from group three, most of them, who had previously learned that nothing they did had any effect on the shocks, simply laid down passively and whined when they were shocked. It's incredibly sad because they'd come to believe that the shocks were random and that they were powerless. And so Seligman called this learned helplessness, the belief that you no longer can make choices that make a difference. This is an amazing psychological experience. I don't know if Israel in the Old Testament felt this way. I, didn't, I don't know how they might have felt when Isaiah showed up saying the words, comfort ye my people. But I know for us, there are these moments where we start to believe that God doesn't see us. That it doesn't matter. I can't make this stop. I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. I cannot make this stop. It says in the experiment that to change the expectation of the dogs in group three, the experimenters had to physically pick up the dogs, move their legs for them to show them that they could take these steps and climb out of the box. And they had to do it at least two times before the dogs finally jumped out on their own. Someone had to come to them, scoop them up, move their legs, say, hey, they still work. And show them how to get out. When we were helpless, God came as our shepherd, carrying us back home. When we were helpless, God came and scooped us up and said, hey, let me show you how these legs work. Let me help you get out of this place. Let me show you that you're not stuck. Let me show you that this isn't the end. In the gospel, the very moments of feeling beyond help or feeling helpless are precisely the moments when Jesus shows up. The very place when you say, I finally, okay, I am feeling beyond help. I've gone and done it now. Or I'm helpless. Nothing seems to work. I can't change myself. In either of those moments, that is precisely the moment when we begin to see Jesus as the warrior and as the shepherd. See, for Israel in the Old Testament, they had an ideal vision of who the perfect king was. Who was their greatest king? David. And what was David? David was the warrior who defeated Goliath, and David was the shepherd on the back hills, taking care of the the flock from the family. 
And so in Israel's mind, they thought the the perfect king would be one who is strong enough to vanquish our enemies and tender enough to pick us up when we can't move for ourselves. And lo and behold, Jesus, the son of David, arrives. The king, strong enough to vanquish sin and death. The shepherd, tender enough to scoop you up out of the box and say, let's walk. Let's go. Let's get out of this place. Guys, when you think about that, when you think about God coming to us like that, isn't that the reason why we go to others? Isn't that the reason why we serve? If we believe that at the very heart of the gospel is a God who came to us when we could not come to Him, isn't this why we serve? Isn't this why we give? I love what Pastor Evan was saying about the opportunity that we have between December 18th and the 25th to take meals to these families who are experiencing homelessness. There is no feeling of helplessness than the feeling of being homeless for a season as a family. And imagine that we get to say to, hey, we're coming to you. They're staying up at the World Prayer Center. We've got rooms for them for that week. And we get to come to them with meals and say, hey, let's just sit. Let's just eat. We're coming to you. We are like the messenger in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, you know, he did the same thing and he had the camel hair and the locust. We don't even need to do that today with camel hair. <laughs> we can just go with a plate of food and say, Comfort of God be with you. Comfort of God be with you. Why do we do Alpha? Why do we set the table for people who would never come to church? And by the way, that's who Alpha is for. It's not a discipleship class. It's not for people who are already Christians. It's for people who'd never show up here on a Sunday morning. Why do we do that? To make a feast in the wilderness. To let the mountains be brought down and the valleys be brought high to make the uneven path level, to make the crooked path straight, to say, God has come to you. This is why we do this. When you keep reading Isaiah 40, you realize that this chapter just keeps getting better. Verse 27, God says, anticipating Israel's protest, God says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Isn't this how you feel? Isn't this how you feel sometimes? When you feel beyond help or you feel helpless, you become convinced that your way is hidden from God. God doesn't see. He doesn't know. He doesn't hear. He doesn't understand. Comfort. How can there be comfort? And maybe it's easy to think about comfort in the final coming of God because we know one day the dwelling of God will be with man. Revelation 21 says it. We know one day every tear will be wiped away. We know there's an ultimate comfort. But what about now? In the meantime? This is what the Lord says to you. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. To the dogs from group three who've stopped believing that anything you do matters. 
whose hearts have become faint, whose very strength is gone. It is God who gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, God increases your strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord to you, friends. That yes, there is an ultimate comfort that is coming, but the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is comfort is now because God gives us strength even now. Even now. For the early Christians, they must have had the end of Isaiah in the back of their minds when Jesus said, go to the upper room and wait upon the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength. And maybe for some of you, soaring like an eagle seems a bit much. And even running and not growing weary seems kind of impossible. But walk? All right, Lord. Take my feet. Show me how they move again. Lift me out of the box. Give them strength again to walk and not faint. God's coming is our comfort. God's coming is our comfort.